Dr. Balper and the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this, this edition of the program, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. This is weekly Monday appearance, except it occurs on a Tuesday in this particular case. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. And on this edition of the program, as he does in all of his appearances, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, some curious decisions. Some decisions in baseball with curious implications. For example, the Los Angeles Dodgers have signed third baseman Justin Turner, have re-signed third baseman Justin Turner to a contract for four years and $64 million. Why, I asked Dave Cameron, why would a player who is projected for the highest war among all free agents receive not the best contract of all those free agents, receive, in fact, the contract of the third best relief pitcher on the market, who is Mark Melanson. I also asked Cameron about some other considerations that players have to make when agreeing to a contract. For example, union demands, geography, taxes, and also perhaps playing for a winning ball club. Playing for a winning ball club. I also asked, on the subject of curious decisions, I asked Dave Cameron about Ian Desmond and the Colorado Rockies' decision to sign him, not only to sign him, but to forfeit the 11th overall pick in the next draft. Why would they do that? And then announce that they would play him at first base, the position to, to the best of my knowledge. He has not played in the major leagues. I'm not looking at his baseball reference page, but I assume he has not played it in the major leagues. Additionally, Dave Cameron, in an unexpected development, has breaking news, has some breaking news about former major league baseball player Ken Griffey Jr. As far as I know, Ken Griffey Jr. has normal urinary function. That dumb Information and other dumb information like it and what's to follow, what's following most immediately, however, is a message from our sponsor. Are you familiar, listener, with how the world is populated by equal parts of horror and misery? Horror and misery? Work and hassle are some other elements that occupy the world. What you will not experience is any of those qualities when you use SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. SeatGeek is designed for people who would like to purchase a ticket or tickets, plural, to a concert or sporting event. What they do is to pull tickets available at all other sites, presumably on the World Wide Web, all other sites on the World Wide Web, so you can save time, never miss a deal. And even better, what they do is to assess a grade based on value so that, like an early 21st century GM, you can exploit the ticket buying market. And did I say best of all yet? I think I said even better. But best of all... SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. They don't lie to you. They don't lie to you like StubHub. StubHub with their lying lies. No. SeatGeek is reputed for their honesty. Like a saint. Like a saint except also a business that sells tickets. And for having endured this message, you, the listener, have the opportunity to receive a $20 rebate. Here's how you claim it. You download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. You enter the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, the correct spelling of FANGRAPHS. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today for your nearest possible convenience with which utterance I have completed this nonsense of an introduction and am prepared to move this whole thing towards the conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does the feature managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron? When does it begin? Right now.
We, did, we, we saw each other quite a bit during the winter meetings, but we did not actually record any of those conversations. Yeah, more than I would have liked. In terms of seeing? Yeah, right. Not in terms of recording. No, no. I think the precise amount yeah, of exactly recording. Exactly the amount of recording I wanted to do, but yeah. mo- more of you than I would have liked. Right. <laughs> the, um, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you today about curious decisions. And I suppose okay. we'll start from the present. Uh, there appears to have been a curious decision made. And I suppose, well, I don't know. It seems curious from the outside. It concerns Justin Turner, who, what, has officially, has not quite officially maybe signed a deal for four years and $64 million? Yeah, not officially. So it's been reported that he's closing in on a deal. So not right. even reported that it's done yet. Okay, but the, but uh, if he does, if he were to sign, we believe that those would are the terms are very similar to the terms. Yeah, Ken Rosenthal and Joel Sherman have reported that if the deal gets done or when the deal gets done, that's going to be what he gets. And for sixty four, as you point out today, uh, Monday, nope, Tuesday, the post at Fangraphs dot com is very similar to the deal that Mark Melanson just signed to close for the San Francisco Giants? Yeah, you could actually argue it's even less because Melanson only got $62.5 million over four years, but he got an opt-out after the second year. So Melanson has a little bit more upside, where if he has two more good years, he could hit free agency again and reset his contract. If Turner doesn't get an opt-out, we don't know that he's not going to. But if it's just straight 464, that's worth less than the 462.5 with an opt-out that Melanson got. And, and what is our what is the latest uh, wisdom we have concerning how to price opt-outs, price in opt-outs? Yeah, they're different from? for every kind of player. They're worth less for a reliever because relievers have shorter shelf lives, so it's less likely that Melanson's going to be able to use an opt-out than, you know, say, a younger position player who's more likely to stay healthy and be good in a couple of years. Um, so the opt-out for Melanson might not be worth a ton of money. All the relievers, uh, Jansen and Chapman as well, got opt-outs after their third years. Uh, I think teams are probably willing to give opt-outs to relievers because they don't think like it, the odds of them being you know elite relievers in three or four years is not very good when you look at the track record of relievers. So um, they're probably only worth a few million bucks. But you know Turner only got 1.5 million more than Melanson, and you know he might not get the opt-out. So if I would think that the opt-out from Melanson is worth more than 1.5 million dollars. Now, when you say when you say the, the actual value of the opt-out, I, I assume that what you're doing is you're expressing in terms of an average. Of, because you don't, because we do not necessarily know. Of course, we don't know. Uh, you know what? How Mark Melanson will pitch over the first two years of his contract? Yeah, I mean, it's, we're basically talking about a probability, right? So, like, what are the odds that Melanson pitches well enough, and the market continues to value relievers highly enough to where in two years he'll be able to get himself a raise? And then, how significant will that raise be over if he hadn't had the opt out? And uh, so, like, say he's gonna have like two thirty. Four left on his deal, I think, or 232, something like that. Um, what are the odds that he could get, say, 345 and so like that gets an extra $13 million, except you have to account for the fact that he would have gotten potentially some money uh, at, in that fifth year uh, if he hadn't had the opt-out and he was still pitching the big leagues, so maybe he gets 5 or 6 or $7 million if he's just a, you know, mediocre middle reliever at that point. So then the opt-out gets him six million bucks and you say, okay, what are the odds of him getting the opt-out? If it's, you know, 20%, then 20% of six million dollars is 1.2 million dollars and that's what the opt-out would be worth. So it's basically just a probability calculation. Are there other industries in which opt-outs exist? Um, well, most industries don't have Contra- guaranteed contracts the way Major League Baseball does. So like in fact, you can, most even like other sports don't even really. Yeah, like most other sports don't have guaranteed contracts like Major League Baseball does, right? Like in the NFL, you can get cut. 
So the team opts out of paying you. Uh, yeah, that's not, that's like a really bad opt out for a player. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like most people in life, like you could opt out of Fangraphs anytime you wanted to. You could just be like, "Peace out," and off you go, and then right. and you have an opt out. Well, you give two weeks' notice. You don't have to give two weeks' notice. You could be a really lousy employee and just quit. Yeah, is like, it is it mostly a cur- is it considered a courtesy two weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think two weeks is, like, the minimum courtesy. Depending, like, I think in previous jobs that I have quit, I think I gave, like, six months because I felt really bad that I was leaving and I wanted them to have lots of time to replace me. Uh, that maybe was too much. <laughs> but uh, but I think two weeks is, like, the bare minimum. Right. Yeah, hey, uh, probably also matters what sort of job you're doing. If you're a teacher and you give two weeks notice, that's kind of a dick move. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I think if you're a baseball player and you give two weeks notice, that's actually pretty great, right? Like, I'm going to not continue playing for you. You should call someone up for the minors. Like, oh, neat. Right, even if you were going to retire. Yeah. Like, most guys who do it, they're just like, yeah, I'm gone. Well, like, Ken Griffey Jr. just, like, got in his car and drove home, like, during a game and, like, called them from the road. Like, I think he drove from, like, Seattle to Cincinnati or something. He, like, called them in Montana. It was like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm done. Really? Yeah. I've never heard that story. Yeah, he was uh, he was pretty bad. In terms of his conduct. No, no, he was his per- per- oh. performance. He was he was pretty terrible. Right. So he what he just uh, he was just he just left the game. Yeah, like June or July or something like that. He was just like I don't want to do this anymore. I'm a backup DH. I can't hit. Uh, what am I doing? I'm going home. Hmm. So he just like, probably... got in his car and drove home. You think he stopped? I mean, I, I would assume he had to pee. Like. As yeah, far as I know, King Griffey Jr. has normal, you know, urinary function. Do you, but do you think, like, I mean, is there, do, you know, do we know what hotels at which he stayed? Uh, he's a baseball person, probably a Marriott. Probably a Marriott, okay. Yeah. Huh. I would I would read, you know, like, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the author, but it was a great piece. I think it was also a popular piece, the story of D- Doug Mirabelli oh, yeah. um, being traded. Yeah. The um, oral history. That's right. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah I would. Uh, I would at least consider reading a story of Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr. riding home. Okay. Uh, um, I think you should call. Who would be the best person to do that? Ryan Divish, Maybe. or yeah, Shannon Dreyer. She's a. Uh, she's close with Griffey. Okay. Uh, you should call her and pitch the idea. Also, a fun story about these Mariner-related. Eric Burns, I believe, uh, rode off a stadium in a bicycle. I think that's how he quit. He, like, just got on his bike and, like, rode through the clubhouse and, like, rode away. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, during fairly, the game I'm, again? Like, after the game. Like, he had a yeah. bad game. He, like, whatever, got thrown out at home to end the game or something like that. Made some mm-hmm. made some bad play that cost his team the game. So he just got on his bike and left. And that was the end. that was the end of Eric Burns, the major leader. And then I read like Susan Slusser did a piece last week. Eric Burns is now an ultra marathon runner. That's not surprising to me. Yeah, he's a weird dude. Yeah, he seemed to have a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah, yes, he did. <laughs> I think uh, I was talking to someone at the winter meetings, and they no- mentioned that uh, Eric Burns played winter ball in the Dominican, uh, which sometimes Americans go down to do to make extra money. You mean like recently? Yeah, I mean like probably five or ten years ago. Back when he was still playing. And the fans loved him. And they called him Captain America because he had blonde hair. And, like, uh, he was, like, the hero of the the Dominican Winter League. Yeah. So this is the Eric Burns portion of the podcast. Yeah, Eric, let's see. Rewind Eric Burns, uh, Craig Griffey Jr., retiring, opt-outs. Oh, and uh, Justin Turner. Yeah. 
coming back to that. We yeah. don't know if Justin Turner has them. We don't uh, know we if do Justin Turner has them. And we've attempted to, uh, and you explained how one would go about estimating the value of, of, of an opt-out. But even, uh, so if you include the value of Melanson's opt-out, it's probably worth, uh, if not the same, then and, and possibly more than Turner's contract that he signed. Yes, so I, I would think most people would take 462.5 with an opt-out over 464. Let's so let's let's ask about Turner then. Let's let's ask uh, the reasons why he might make such a decision. And you speculate on some of them, and I suppose speculation is all one can make at this point. Um, and uh, perhaps all Justin Turner will allow people uh, uh, to uh, to employ in terms of understanding his reasons for signing this contract or the Dodgers' reasons for signing it. But it seems curious nonetheless because Justin Turner, I think, as well, uh, some combination of Corinne Landry and Craig Edwards have recently explained was probably the best or second best free agent of uh, of this offseason. Yeah, we had him ranked as our number two overall free agent heading into the, the offseason on our top 50. And I think we in the, in the write-up I made the point of, like, it's not crazy to prefer Justin Turner to UNS Cespedes. You could make a real case that he's the best free agent on the market. And uh, and yet he, this deal that, it appears that he's signing – is uh, quite a bit lower than Cespedes's, yep. lower than De- uh, Dexter Fowler's, yep. less money than Araldus Chapman received, about $20, $20 million less, is that yeah, right? Correct. And uh, $15 million, $16 million less than Kenley Jansen, and $6 million less than Ian Desmond. And if you told me that Ian Desmond was going to get more money than Justin Turner before the offseason, I would have thought like Justin Turner would have like, you know, gotten malaria or something. Right, so Ian Desmond is... Uh, he. The, he uh, represents another instance of a curious decision about which I'll be asking. But for the purposes of the purposes for the purposes of this, um, I uh, I would like to know what what are considerations that both both and, and you could even actually leave teams out of it entirely. I, I have a sense um, that there are there are always considerations players are are accounting for that that um, lay people like ourselves are not. Um, or at least lay people like myself or not. I remember at one point, right, there was pressure on Alex Rodriguez, and I think there's always pressure, right, to take the to take the most money available to, especially if you're a star player. Yeah. Uh, always to take the most money because you essentially uh, you recalculate the uh, at the price of a win or the the different the various thresholds at which other players can point to which other players can point. Yes, you set you set a precedent that the the theory is the rising tide lifts all boats, right? So like if a star player gets a lot of money, everyone else below him can be like, I'm not as good as that guy, but I'm ninety percent as good, so I want ninety percent of the money. Right. Okay. So that's one method. But and then and then as you point out, of course, there's also uh, the just the virtues of a familiar situation. So in this case, that would be not just the Dodgers, but perhaps larger than that is like the you know the Los Angeles County area. Right. As one of our commenters pointed out, uh, he was born in Long Beach, went to high school in Longwood, went to Cal State Fullerton, I believe, or one of the Cal State schools. Uh, and then the first time he had free agency after the Mets waived him or released him or whatever happened there, he chose to go to the Dodgers. And now his first chance he has to leave the Dodgers, he's like, nope, I'm staying here. So it right. uh, seems likely that Justin Turner likes Los Angeles. Right. And I, from your memory, I guess, what what are what is the what are sort of the, some of the most explicit examples of of the hometown discount? Um, to what degree does it actually exist relative, especially to how often it's uh, invoked? Yeah, I mean, I think like um, 
Javier Vazquez was, I think, famous for only wanting to play on East Coast teams because he wanted to fly back to Puerto Rico, I believe, which is where he was from, uh, regularly, and the East Coast cities have non-stops to Puerto Rico, or West Coast cities do not. So I believe Javier Vazquez, for most of his career, uh, said, I will only sign with or agree to trades to East Coast teams. So he played for the Marlins, he played for the Expos, played for the White Sox. He, he basically kept his entire career on the East Coast. Uh, I think there was there actually are people who would say that the Chicago is not on the East Coast. Yeah, but it's the Eastern like geographers, for example. Eastern <laughs> travel ish, right? Like you can get from Chicago to Puerto Rico, no right. problem. And it's a huge airport, obviously. Yeah. It's, uh, I think this might have actually been similar with Andrew Miller last year. Uh, I believe the Dodgers made a pretty hard push for Andrew Miller, but he's an East Coast guy. I uh, went to school in North Carolina. Uh, what he's pitched for the Red Sox, Marlins, uh, Orioles, Yankees. Um, you know, I, I think what well, you pitched for the Tigers, but that wasn't his choice. Uh, but I think Andrew Miller had a pretty serious East Coast preference. So I think we generally see less of like, I want to play for this team and more like, I want to be in this time zone. Right. Well, now, it seems, are there other teams that would have had the financial wherewithal on the West Coast or in that general region to sign Justin Turner or are the Dodgers the only one? Well, I mean, I think if you look at like, what are the West Coast teams that are, trying to win, it's probably the Dodgers, the Giants, who you could say could do the third baseman and probably would have done well to steal the Dodgers' third baseman. Like, I know they went into the offseason saying, we need a closer, but really, but if they only had $64 million to spend and they could have taken Justin Turner and installed him at third base, that's a better use of funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they could have been an option if they weren't just entirely focused on relief help. Um you could probably say that the Mariners probably could be in at $64 million. They don't need a third baseman, but maybe they could have pitched him on playing first base, which I think currently is um, some combination of like Danny Valencia and Dan Vogelbach, which, you know, Justin Turner would be better than that. Um, but San Diego's rebuilding, Oakland's rebuilding. The Angels don't have a lot of money, uh, so they might not be in the mix. But really, I mean, $64 million in this day and age, like, everybody kind of has that. Right. So, okay, so we're talking about some considerations uh, that might occur to a player that might not to a layperson in terms of accepting a contract. One of them, you know, discussed briefly that just, you know, the union, the union and your colleagues will probably want you to accept a high contract. Uh, geography is one we're considering now. What is, uh, can you can you tell me about taxes? Yeah, well, how taxes does, in how California do, are really high. Okay, so taxes in California, do, do you have any concrete sense that players have signed for one reason or another, or, the, or they've agreed to say like a lo- what appears to be a lower overall value when the after being applied by the effective tax rate, or after being you know subjected to the effective tax rate of a state, it will actually uh, that that contractor would actually pay them more. Yeah, so I believe Texas does not have a state income tax. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure that's true, but I'm like ninety eight percent sure that's true. Um, and so Texas is a all the Texas teams can be desirable places for teams for players to go for tax reasons because there's you know you're gonna have to pay the federal tax no matter where you play, uh, but not having the state income tax can make a pretty big difference. And so I believe California uh, has like a fifteen percent state tax on funds over a million dollars. So when you're talking like 15% of your annual salary uh, on, you know, a marginal difference, that can be a huge chunk of change. Um, I believe Zach Greinke, last year when he signed in Arizona, um, there was some talk that, like, the tax base in Phoenix is so much more favorable for, for ball players than it is in California. That was part of the reason why he was willing to leave the Dodgers to go to the Diamondbacks. Obviously, $206 million helped, too. 
um, but there was definitely some um, some thought that the tax base in Arizona helped the Diamondbacks make that offer. Right. All right. But 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 it doesn't seem as though it necessarily. I mean, you're getting you're talking about two hundred million dollars for many players. Uh, there's going to be the differences will be somewhat marginal. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you're you're trying to figure out if you can like save, you know, uh, a million here and a couple million there. I mean, you know, when you already have a couple hundred billion, maybe maybe another million doesn't matter all that much. But if you're just really incentivized to make as much money and to grow your bank account as large as possible, uh, I think Texas and Florida are the places to go. Are there any other uh, variables you can you can think of off the top of your head? Well, teams, you know, guys like to win. So, oh yeah, that's a good point. Winning, yeah. winning, winning matters. Yeah, I guess there have been instances where players have taken less to play on a winning team. Oh yeah, lots of them. I think uh, we specifically see like with the Astros, maybe last winter or the winter before, like they had a real hard time getting people to take their money. They were the, reportedly the high bidder on Andrew Miller and like a bunch of other guys, and eventually they just made the Ken Giles trade because no one wanted to sign there. But the, but uh, I think the the reputation has probably changed somewhat rapidly, right? Yeah, I mean now it's a better team. Team, if, you know, people could look at it and be like, oh yeah, this is a young rebuilding club that's you know ready to go instead of a team that I'm going to go lose a hundred games on. So. And I know that uh, like the Kansas City Royals, uh, around the time they signed Jason Vargas, yep, one of the essentially or no, it was even it was even before Jason Vargas it was Gil Mesh. Oh yeah, Gil Mesh, fifty five million dollars. Yeah, and the point was like, well, they just they can't sign many people, so they yeah. sign who they can. Right. I think the Rockies have made this argument too. Whenever they give too much money to a bad pitcher, they're like, well, pitchers aren't going to come here unless we give them like twice as much, or unless they trade for them. Right. So they have to. They, that's their yeah. method. But then, of course, they probably get a. Di- do Do you think that the Rockies get a discount on hitter- hitters? Uh, not necessarily. I think the the penalty they get on pitchers is probably larger. Like they might get a little bit of a discount, but I don't think we've seen a lot of examples of hitters taking less money to go to Colorado just because they're going to put up big stats in Colorado. Because I think everyone in baseball realizes, like, oh yeah, we're just going to park adjust your stats. You hit forty seven homers in Colorado. That's the same as like twenty nine anywhere else. Was Dante Bichette? Was he a good player? Uh, I think he had. Maybe the lowest war of any player who's ever had like a hundred RBI season. I think Paul Swyden wrote about this, where he had like a yeah, hundred and twenty yeah. RBIs and a, like a negative one and a half war or something. So no, no I don't good. think Dante Bichette was actually a good player. Yeah, right. And- Andres well, Galarraga was actually a good player. He was actually a good player. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let me ask you one uh, one other question with regard to the Turner contract, and then I want to ask you about the curious decision of uh, of Ian Desmond at first base. Here is the thing is that the Dodgers, actually not only in Justin Turner, but also in Kenley Jansen, have signed two players to whom they had extended qualifying offers. Can you tell me about the sort of savings that that gives the Los Angeles Dodgers? Uh, not unless you phrase the question in a way that makes sense. Okay. They spent $80 million and $64 million. What do you mean by savings? So, all right, well, savings relative to if... If those two players had signed for another team. Well, then if those players had signed elsewhere, then they would have saved $144 million. Oh, yeah, that's right. The savings – no, no, this is what I mean. The savings that the Dodgers get for signing them as opposed to another team having signed them. Do you see what I'm saying? So say I am the Giants and I do sign Justin Turner. Right. Then I'm going to have to pay essentially a tax for having signed him. 
Yeah, so there's a little bit of asymmetry here. The tax that teams have to pay to sign a player is higher, is larger than the reward that teams get for losing a player. Because, like, say, so the Rockies, we'll we'll talk about in a second, they gave the 11th overall pick to sign uh, Ian Desmond. Uh, The Rangers do not get the 11th pick in the draft. So there is some asymmetry here where the, the penalty is higher on the signing team, but it's not... It's not that there's a tax on signing and not a tax on re-signing. If the Dodgers had let Turner and Jansen go, they would have gotten draft picks for letting them go. So they right. they did pay essentially a um, a tax in giving up those draft picks for not letting those players leave. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh, so they paid a tax. So it's actually like it's they're paying a tax. little. So, but in a sense, it's like they're paying uh, Turner. The Dodgers are paying Turner a little bit more than sixty-four million dollars. Right. I mean, when you look at from the team's perspective, all of the qualifying offer guys cost a little bit more than their salary. Right. But it would have cost, and that's an interesting point about the asymmetry because it's not an exact uh, right. translation right. in terms of picks. Yeah. Well, good points all around, Dave Cameron. Hey, uh, so Ian Desmond was signed for what seventy million dollars over five years? Yeah. Over five years, and. Uh, of course, Ian Desmond was a player who last year had been extended a qualifying offer, right. and uh, well, he ended up having to settle on a one-year deal, didn't he? He took one year and eight million to go show that he could play the outfield and kind of uh, give teams um, more options for their aging curves for his future. Uh, because I think he wasn't a very good defensive shortstop, and people probably looked at him and said, "Look, you know, we like the bat, but we're not sure about the gloves. We're not sure what you are." So he took $8 million to go play in Texas, showed people that he could actually play the outfield and actually play it decently, uh, and, and then the Rockies signed him to play first base. What is the opposite of recency bias? Well, I mean, maybe the one opposite is not to not to have a bias based yeah, off of no, recent. No bias. <laughs> no bias, okay. Well, what is it if you exhibit bias because of what a player uh, what you know, because of the er- your earliest exposure to a particular phenomenon? Yeah, I don't know if that actually has a term. Uh, it, it might be primacy bias. What do you think? Yeah, sure. We could use that. Primacy bias. I, I'll buy it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think it might be a thing. Let's call it primacy bias. Okay. And this is something to which, and perhaps uh, perhaps I'm speaking only for myself. I frequently am. Uh, but, I, but, I'm guess, but I'm also not that special. Uh, so perhaps one other uh, person out there has suffered from this, which is, and this is, very much applies to Ian Desmond, he uh, began the season... Uh, quite well, if I remember. And yeah. so I had what I did was into my own head. I filed away that Ian Desmond had essentially rebounded uh, in in 2016, and uh, this was that was all there was to know. But I think reading Jeff Sullivan's coverage of the Ian Desmond signing, uh, that was not really the case. He, he was not very good at all over the second half. Yeah, he's so over the last two years, Ian Desmond has had. One good season and one bad season, he's just had them half at a time. So his <laughs> first half in, in 2015 was atrocious, and his second half was fine, kind of Ian Desmond-ish. And then in 2016, his first half was really good, and his tw- second half was terrible. So it, over the bulk, if you were just like cutting it into four halves, you'd be like, yeah, he's had one good year and one bad year. Um, but the, each of the last two years has been a mix of, hey, this is guy's really good, and oh, man, this guy's the worst player ever. Yeah, he was. He, uh, so, in fact, um, he was almost, uh, I mean, if you want to phrase it like this, he was almost twice as good at hitting uh, in the first half this past season than he was the second half. He had, uh, his batting line was about 40% better than league average um, over the, the first half, and it was 35% worse than league average uh, the second half. So, um, 
things did not work out over the second half, and uh, perhaps it's um, something more than the product of, uh, of batting average and ball in play. Does that seem like it's possible? Yeah, I mean, Desmond has a lot of swing and miss in his game. He doesn't have a lot of power. So when, uh, you know, when you're striking out a lot and not hitting the ball very hard, that's a tough combination to be productive with. I guess he's relied quite a bit on on his bad bip for his overall offensive profile over the course of his career. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, right. Uh, in addition, of course, uh, having played shortstop, he didn't the the offensive bar was not always particularly high, but as a center fielder, uh, it's a little bit higher. And then, uh, and then as a first baseman, it's it's very high. Yeah. Uh, can you discuss? Is is it is just Suggesting that Ian Desmond is their first baseman, is that only because the Rockies are going to trade someone else and they just don't want to say that? So that's what I thought when I heard the news. Uh, yeah. And I think there's still like a pretty decent chance that that's what actually happens here. Is like, they're like, no, this is a stupid plan. We should go get a real first baseman and stick Desmond in a position where he has value. Um, so I think there's a good chance that that happens, or at least a decent chance that happens. In talking to people in National Harbor where we were last week, there were... Uh, enough people who were involved in the conversations or um, had talked to people involved in the conversations that there was a sense that this was actually the Rockies' plan, is that they like Desmond as his athleticism. They think he could be a plus first baseman. They really like his character. This is the spot they had open. They, you know, it's better than spending money on Mark Trumbo was an argument I heard, which is not wrong. But is also not right. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's like we just we just stumbled upon that right there. We recognize that there are different kinds of opposites, right? Yeah. Um, one one opposite of recency bias is no bias. Another yeah. one is primacy bias. You can be <laughs> just because a player is better than Mark Trumbo or the signing is better than signing Mark Trumbo doesn't necessarily mean it's also a great signing. Yeah, you could be like, I'm not going to stab myself in the face with this knife. I stabbed myself in the arm with this knife. And like, good job. Also, bad job. Maybe just don't <laughs> yeah. stab. Yeah, stop stabbing. Yeah. Who's making you stab all right, the time? Why are you doing this? Stop this. Knock yeah. off. Uh, yeah, so I think the Rockies, um, we don't know what they're doing, which is basically been the case for the last 10 years. We don't know what the Rockies are doing or why they're doing it. They do weird things. They did weird things last winter. They did weird things. They're doing weird things this winter. Um, I think the Rockies are probably going to make a move, but if they don't, if this was the plan, if they really just gave up the 11th pick in the draft, the highest draft pick you can possibly surrender, and $70 million to play Ian Desmond at first base in a market crowded with right-handed first base options... This is the worst free agent decision we've seen in a couple of years, at least, and maybe longer than that. Like, if they're going to stick him at first base, he's a one-win player in decline uh, that costs, you know, a draft pick that's worth more than he is, plus the seventy million dollars for a team that's not that great. What do you see? Some like, what do you see? Some some good possible outcomes from this? I mean, it, it, like the way that they would be if you do take for granted that. They want to play him somewhere else. What, what's the sort of ideal course, as far as you can tell? I mean, trade an outfielder and stick him back out there. Like, that's really where his athleticism plays the best. Um, but they already have too many outfielders, right? So, like, they have Charlie Blackman, Carlos Gonzalez, and David Dahl. That's a pretty good starting outfield. You're probably not going to trade Dahl, who's young and cheap. Uh, they shopped Blackman, theoretically, but the price was too high. So the teams who were interested in Blackman traded for Adam Eaton and signed extra Fowler instead. I'm not sure how many teams out there are still looking for a center fielder. 
they've talked about trading Carlos Gonzalez for like the last 32 years and they've never traded him. Uh, then there was a report last week that they're talking to him about a contract extension. Um, at the very least, I would think like, if you're aligning this roster, just play Cargo at first and stick Desmond in the outfield. Desmond's a good athlete. Cargo is not. Uh, at least not a very good defensive athlete anyway. Uh, Gonzalez has talked about being willing to play first base and seeing him ending his career there. Like, if you're going to keep these guys, play Desmond in the outfield and Gonzalez at first. Or just trade Gonzalez, uh, put Desmond out there. Uh, or trade Blackman and stick Desmond out there. There's a lot of options they have. Um, the trick is that I'm not sure any of them are like great options. Do you have a sense of how a team goes by? I mean, so... Like, would they have talked to Ian Desmond and said, we're going to bring you in to play first base? And Ian Desmond was like, okay? Yeah, that had to be part of the negotiations and, like, a big part. Like, Ian Desmond's not signing, and then you're like, oh, by the way, we're moving you to first base. If the, he, like, He's not on board, right? So if this was the plan, they had to sell him on this plan before he signed, and he had to agree to play first base. Uh, this is the trick that goes with, like, the, oh, this is all just a rouge until they trade someone. You either have to tell Desmond, hey you need to go along with this lie and you need to publicly go along with it and be like, yeah, I'm coming into the play for space and I'm really happy about it until we like snooker one of your now teammates, trade them and give them <laughs> your, give you their spot. So now they don't like you very much. Or you snooker to get Desmond. You told him you came into play for space. He's like, gets a new, new, uh, training regimen. Figured out how to play this new position. And then you're like, haha, just kidding. <laughs> we only did that for a few weeks. Thanks for joining us, uh, under a lie. So either way, it's not great. Yeah. It was curious. Is that, was that the, was that the most unusual move you, you think you witnessed over like the last week and a half? Over the last few so years. I mean, like, signing okay. Ian Desmond to play first base would be, like, about as normal as signing Rich Hill to be, like, your right-handed arm out of the bullpen, considering he throws left-handed. <laughs> like, oh, what am I doing? Like, I I just, like, I haven't talked to anyone of the Rockies, so I haven't heard their side. I don't want to say, like, there is no reasoning for it. I just don't know what it is. Especially in a market where, like, your division rival gets a really good third baseman who could play first base uh, in Justin Turner for less money. Like, if if the Rockies had a chance to spend $80 million and get Justin Turner, and they spent $70 million and got Ian Desmond, that's an, a, that's an epic disaster. So, now that they have conceded rights to the 11th overall pick in the draft, which, yeah. as you mentioned, is the first one that's not protected, yeah. right? Yeah. Are, are they incentivized now to sign another free agent? Yes, to some extent, um, because the cost of all the other qualifying offer for agents went down. The trick is, like, who and where, right? <laughs> so, like, they already have too many position players, which is why they stuck Ian Desmond at first base. They're so, like, oh, we should sign more qualifying offer guys. What, are you going to sign Jose Batista? Where are you going to stick him? Are you going to sign Mark Trumbo? He's bad. Don't do that. Are you going to sign Edwin Encarnacion? Well, you just signed Desmond to play the position that Encarnacion could go. You're going to try and sign... I don't know what other players got a qualifying offer. Not very many. Like, it's not really a position that the Rockies can be like, okay, we're going to sign three guys because they um, uh, they don't really have places for the type of free agents that are available now that they signed a guy who doesn't play the position of all the other qualifying offer players. Do you, uh, the Tigers could benefit from a center fielder? I mean, a lot of teams could benefit from the center fielder, but, like, the Tigers are looking to cut payroll and, you know, get younger. So I don't think they're looking at giving up prospects, which they don't really have that many of, for Charlie Lackman. You know, like, the trade fits out there. St. Louis was probably the best one. That's off the table. 
Washington was a reasonable one. That's off the table. Um, this is not like there's no other teams out there looking for a center fielder, but there's fewer of them. And the, if the asking price was too high for the teams who needed them the most, unless the asking price is going to come down, I don't see why teams with a less urgent need would pay Colorado's asking price. It's, it's a bit mysterious. It's a curious decision, Cameron. It's a curious decision in the way that, like, playing in traffic is a curious decision. You're like, oh, look at that guy. What a weird decision. I don't know why he's trying to dodge cars. <laughs> Let me ask you two quick questions. Yeah. Uh, one of them relates to Danny Espinoza, who was just traded to the Angels. Yeah. After his club, the Washington Nationals, traded for Adam Eaton, which therefore seems to be pushing Trey Turner from center field to shortstop. Correct. Which therefore would have been pushing Danny Espinosa to the bench. Yeah, or maybe. I mean, what I wrote about this last week is the, the Nationals like are a good team, but they have two really bad starting position players in Jason Worth and Ryan Zimmerman. Like, these are not the kind of players that you look at and be like, yeah, I want them playing every day on a championship caliber club. Worth is yeah. 37, Zimmerman's 32, both are injury prone. I mean, these are not, you know, these are not good players. Espinosa's better than both of them. Uh, they could have just pushed Daniel Murphy to first base and said, okay, we're going to go with a really good defensive infield with Espinosa at second, which, you know, he's, he's capable of playing short. He's a really good defensive second baseman. Murphy would be better at first. Um, so that was an option. Or they could have kept Turner in center, kept Espinosa, uh, um, at short, played Eaton in a corner, moved Bryce Harper to left, and benched Jason Worth. So they didn't have to do what they did. But it seems like they were more interested in playing Zimmerman and Worth than Espinoza. I'm not sure that was the right choice. Mm. I think that you, uh, you make a good point, and I, I remember because um, we've already run the Zips projections for the Nationals. Yeah. And yes, it's a, it appears to be quite a good team with two very distinct holes. Yeah, I mean they can still go get someone better than one of those guys, uh, or at least like some kind of left-handed guy who could platoon with them, or you know, be ready for when like in July they're like, ah, Jason Worth stinks. We should have someone else. Like, maybe they'll go get someone like that. Uh, but I think just uh, saying they didn't have room for Danny Espinosa isn't really true unless you overvalue their two old bad players. What I was going to ask you with regard to Espinosa is this, uh, is that uh, he had perhaps expressed some of his dissatisfaction with the Eaton acquisition, or at least what appeared to be uh, the decision to move him to the bench uh, w- in the media. He shared yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, it... It does not seem to me as though this is very common. I know, like, in world football, for example, uh, you see very, with some frequency, players will announce their dissatisfaction. And, of course, this is a situation where, like, the mega clubs have, like, the best player. They have, like, two of the best player at every position, right? Right. Um, and that, that happens less in baseball, given, for, you know, a number of variables. Uh, can you think of other instances, though, where a player pu- publicly expressed his displeasure, and then, and then his displeasure was acted on so swiftly? Uh, yeah, I mean, you don't normally see players come out in the media and say like, "I want to be traded," but it certainly happens uh, behind the scenes where teams, where you know, players are like, "Hey, look, I'm not happy with my role. I would like to be starting instead of relieving. I would like to be, you know, playing more than I am. I would like to be hitting in a different spot in the lineup. Whatever." Like, uh, there was a. Uh, an in, uh, I don't know, not insignificant number of trades every year that uh, are based around like well, I think Jeremy Giambi maybe in Oakland was like unhappy back in the Moneyball days, and Billy Bean was like, "Fine, you're not on my team anymore." Just like got him out of there. Um, I think it happens probably more often than we think. Okay. In uh, the last question I was going to address with you concerns Yon Mankata, who of course 
was one uh, was one of the players traded to the Chicago White Sox in exchange for Chris Sale. <coughs> yeah, we, I love how I mean this is like the classic Fangraphs podcast is like let's get to the Chris Sale trade after we talk about Danny Espinosa. Well, it's always my opinion that the, the, these sort of deals, there's the least to say about them. Well, anyway, you, you have your own opinions. Yes, I think it is classic. And actually, given the way things unfolded, uh, I ended up tweeting uh, quite a bit about Mauricio Dubon uh, yeah. minutes after the Chris Sale trade. Yeah. So As you yes, would. This is the correct order of events. Yeah. <laughs> but we're also a week out from the trade. So if people came here looking for for the the, the most recent – uh, analysis, you know, of the Chris Sale trade. They were well. The Ian Desmond signing happened at the same time as the Sale trade, right? Or maybe even the next day. Yeah, but it was. It made it. It made sense, though. The whole thing makes sense. Here's what doesn't make sense. I want to <laughs> ask you about this. Is Yon Makata? It was ranked, like for example, by Baseball America, number one overall, and it's not just on their, their midseason list. And it's not. They, that's not an exception. He was. He's been ranked. If if not number one overall, top three by basically every notable outlet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Simul and he has great tools, excellent tools, really impressive physique, etc. He also has uh, demonstrated real problems with contact. Yeah. And I'm always wondering, cause, and, and maybe it's because a lot of these lists are based off of ceiling, but making contact is like such a crucial skill, and players' whole careers have been sunk because of their inability to do so. So what? So what's the deal with that? <laughs> uh, so I think there's optimism that a current flaw is not a permanent flaw. So like, yeah. this was also an issue with Chris Bryant a couple of years ago, right? Like Chris Bryant was considered the best prospect in baseball or one of the best prospects in baseball, and there were still people out there being like, "Well, look at the strikeout rate. He could be Brandon Wood." Uh, and because Chris Bryant struck out a lot in the minor leagues, uh, he struck out a lot in his rookie year. And, uh, you know, despite being a very good player in his rookie year, people were like, well, 32% strikeouts, that's not going to work. And then last year, Chris Bryant struck out like 24% of the time, right? And like Javier Baez, 40% strikeout rate in the big leagues. And then last year, 25% or something. So I think there's some hope that, uh, not that Mikado's going to ever become, you know, um, Ben Revere. But, like, maybe instead of an extreme contact guy, he's going to be an average contact guy. And if he has average contact with, you know, above average power and, you know, plus-plus speed and really good athleticism and he hits the ball hard, like, you know, at that point, I don't think it's that hard to see him as a, you know, very high-ceiling guy. He just needs to not strike out, you know, 35% of the time. He needs to get it down into the 20s. Right. You know who was ranked uh, second overall right behind Chris Bryant in the 2005 Baseball America list? Was Byron Buxton? Yeah, who has some contact problems. Uh, 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 you just said the word thirty or the figure thirty-five percent because that was actually his strikeout rate uh, this past year. Yeah, but I think there was like uh, maybe in August or something like that. Byron Buxton like maybe looked like he was starting to put it all together and he struck out a lot less and hit for some power and like yeah, I think yeah. no one in baseball has given up on Byron Buxton, right? Like his stock might be down from where it was a couple years ago and like thankfully people have stopped making the ridiculous Mike Trout comparisons. But mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's like, oh yeah, Byron Buxton, that guy's a total warning sign. You don't want him. And I think if Mankata, you know, might have a similar kind of prospect arc where in a year or two we're like, ah. Uh, you know, maybe we were a little too high on him. Maybe there you know, wasn't enough talk about the contact issues. And then in five or ten years, like he has B.J. Upton's career, like the good B.J. Upton, not the terrible one of recent years, but like the Tampa Bay B.J. Upton. Mm-hmm. Like that's a reasonably good outcome, right? B.J. Upton was a four-win player. So who do you think will have a higher career war, uh, Yonaman Cutter or Max Schrock? 
I don't know how many ways I could bet on Munkata, uh <laughs> but I would like to do all of them. What about Mauricio Dubon? Yeah, I'll take Mankata's career war over Mauricio Dubon's career war without thinking about it. What about Mauricio Dubon plus Mag Uh Still taking Mankata. I guess it's... I mean, looking over, like, Byron Buxton, for example, uh, so he actually looks like 330 plate appearances this past year. He almost managed two wins. Yeah. And uh, he... Because he was an excellent base runner, and he provided value in the field. So I, I guess that's the that's the upside of tools, right? Yeah. There's a floor here for these guys, right? Like, no matter... Like, we don't know Mankata's going to hit in the big leagues. Like, there's a lot of guys who scouts were sure were going to hit who never hit. But if you are, a, you know, a plus-plus runner, you're pretty sure that that's true, right? Like, we don't get speed wrong. So, Mikata's mm-hmm. fast. And we don't know what Mikata's going to be at second base, but if he's not very good out there, it's not that hard to put him in center field. And as we've seen from, like, Mookie Betts or something, right? Like, if you're a good athlete, you can probably be a pretty good outfielder. And so, I think, like, Mikata's floor is probably, like, pretty good defensive guy who runs and hits the ball hard sometimes. So, you know... That's not that different than what Javier Baez was. Like, Baez obviously still plays infield, but, like, some defensive value with too much swing and miss, but some real power. Like, if that's your floor, obviously everyone's floor is, like, not even in the big leagues. But, like, reasonably you can be expected to, like, become a two-win player based on speed and defense. And if you hit, you're a five-win player. Mm -hmm. There's a reason people like these guys. Do you think the Rockies are wondering why... uh why the White Sox or Red Sox and then White Sox would waste all of Mankata's talent at second base when he could be playing first? <laughs> I do think that, like, it, based on... And I think this applies to Trey Turner a little bit, too, who's also really quite fast. I think these guys generally fit better in the outfield. If you have plus-plus speed, uh, especially in this day and age of shifting, speed doesn't really matter all that much in the infield anymore. Speed is about... Or infield is about reactions, positioning... Hands. Uh, hands, uh, accuracy... Like, things that are not just athleticism. And these are things that Mankata's reportedly, like, not great at so far. But if you can just, like, run down a fly ball, like, that plays pretty pretty quickly. And so, like, well, Billy Hamilton was a mediocre defensive shortstop, and Billy Hamilton's the best defensive player alive in center field. So it feels like like Trey Turner and, and Byron Buxton and Yohan Mankata, all these kind of, like, super athlete guys who've come up, they should all be playing center field. Like, uh, that's where they're most valuable. Okay. All right, Cameron. We've discussed uh, well as many curious, curious as many curious decisions as we're going to discuss today. So let us say that you have fulfilled your obligation to the program. Oh. I also want to say to the listener who asked for uh, uh, contributions about Mexico City, I apologize. Uh, I, I was contacted by someone, uh, and he said that his uh, power, no, his water, his Airbnb in Mexico City did not have any water. Um, sorry about that. Brian, I think his name was. Sorry about that, Brian. Okay. I don't know what that had to do with anything, but all right. Sorry, Brian. Yeah, sorry, Brian. All right, Dave Cameron. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Stick around for one moment, but in the meantime, I will say that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.